Welcome to the Boss Bitch Show podcast. Thank we you. are thrilled, thrilled beyond belief to have with us the amazing, the fabulous, the gorgeous Diana Adams. Ah, uh, PLLC. Um, there's so many ways I could introduce you, but let's just jump right in and find out what makes you a boss bitch because it's like, let me count the ways. <laughs> oh, thank you, dear old friend Rachel Green, who's yes. seen a lot of this journey. Um, what makes me a boss bitch? I would say I really manifested the career and life of my dreams as a queer political activist. And when I first met Rachel, I was really involved in queer nightlife. I was doing wacky performance art. I did some improv comedy. Um, I was doing odd jobs around New York to support myself because I was at the point at which I'd been working in legal services, uh, helping people in poverty and felt like I wasn't making as much impact on systemic change as I wanted to. And then in my queer social life, people are coming to me saying, you know, I'm polyamorous and I'm being faced in a child custody case by my ex. Who do I go to for that? And they look for a referral and there was no one to go to. And people would say, we're lesbians and we want to co-parent with our gay best friend in a three person way. Who do we go to for that? I looked around and there was no one. And so I did all of the go to meditation retreats, go to Burning Man, have a revelation that I should just jump off a cliff and find the net on the way down kind of thing. And I started my own law firm. Uh, which I supported by doing odd, very odd New York City jobs uh, in 2007. And it was a really intense time. You know, I, I went to seven years of Ivy League education and then suddenly I was like living in a queer collective called Lady Tiger House uh, in <laughs> that had a mold problem, um, was super, super broke and didn't take out any bank loans, didn't have a rich uh, daddy, a rich boyfriend to pay for me starting my own law firm in New York City. But I really, it was a really scary road, but it actually has really paid off. And 15 years later, I'm delighted by where I am. I run a queer boutique law firm um, in based in New York State, consulting nationwide on these issues and throughout Europe. I just spoke at the White House on bisexual public health issues two weeks ago. <gasps> I gave my first TED Talk, which is coming up on 2 million views this year. Um, on the future of family law. And I think that I really saw that nobody was addressing the fact that same-sex couples were just one part of the queer family world and that there were a lot of other people like my own queer polyamorous community that were not being addressed when we we're talking about queer family needs. And so I started that law firm and then several years ago that went into a nonprofit chosen family law center where we advocate for legislative development for these other kinds of families, helped write and pass some of the first multi-partner domestic partnerships in the U.S., which have passed in three cities in Massachusetts, uh, so that you could be platonic or polyamorous partners, doesn't matter. Uh, you could be domestic partners with two, three or four people, and then share your health insurance benefits or be able to cross a border in a pandemic to be together. Um, and that's something that we're seeing as really valuable people latched onto that that's going to grow on the West Coast this year. So I encourage everyone to embrace that boss bitchness of feeling the, feeling the vision, calling the vision in, making space for it, and then just jumping and doing it. Holy shit. <laughs> wow. 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 Yeah. 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 Yes. We, we, we had our, our, my friend Kathleen yesterday who founded fat girls dance and we were blown away. Right. And, and then I said, right after that, wait till you meet Diana. <laughs> so many boss bitches wow. out there doing great yeah. work. Truly. Um, I'm very fortunate that I, I know a lot of amazing boss bitches. 
I mean, for real. I And you know what, to your point about, you know, building and creating something in New York City and doing it by the skin of your teeth. I think a big part of being a boss bitch is embracing that shit's going to get really scary and you're probably going to cry a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like mm-hmm. our journey, my journey as like a performer and as a creator, it has been a road it's not (laughs) you know it still is you know and it's not all you know sunshine roses and rainbows at all there's a lot of dips and there's a lot of low points and I did a podcast with um what what was it service from hell yeah um with what's her she's incredible go listen to that it's amazing but we were talking about you know uh, her whole podcast is about people who still work in the service industry and most of them happen to be performers and whatnot and what sustains you when you're just trying to pay the bills and build something and what sustains you is exactly what you're talking about is having that really strong intention, that really strong sense of purpose that like this road is going to be so difficult, but the reasons why I'm doing it are strong enough for me to hold on, you know? Wow. Yeah. And I think that we're so particularly lawyers, right? We're Mm -hmm. like in this fear mindset, um, and I felt like oftentimes it was this mixed message because it was like graduating from Yale it was like, you could do anything, but here's your four choices. You could do anything graduating from law school, but really it's corporate or, or be a judge or going to be a law professor. And it, like starting your own firm and being an entrepreneur was not one of those options that people presented. And I think that there's a real power too in embracing that. And I think that I'm one of many people that grew up as a working class girl that was not taught anything about money or business. In fact, Business law was the class I skipped in law school because it happened at 9 a.m. on Friday (laughs) mornings in Ithaca, New York, when it was snowy. And I hosted the Queer Social Thursday nights. And I was like, I picked the Queer Social. I am not getting up at eight in the morning to like, (laughs) like, like wipe the snow off my car for business law while I'm hungover. I'm not doing it. Um, And then I ended up running an international (laughs) business. Whoops. Um, I probably should have taken it. But I've always run from things like money, too. And I think that's sometimes an indication where you feel the fear turn into it. And mm. that's actually been something that's been powerful for me is kind of transforming my relationship with money and being a business owner and also taking on being a boss and doing that in a different way and being able to kind of queer what it means to be a boss or we do personal check-ins twice a week where we talk about how we're feeling. I encourage mental health days. I encourage people to take a lot of vacation time. I encourage people to turn off their cell phone on the weekend. Mm. Like you could do things differently than the really shitty environments I worked in. So I think it's really powerful to kind yeah. of take yeah. on and bring our own essence and, and our own infusion to all of these things that we're doing. Um, so many feels that we're often traditionally male dominated where it's like, uh, as a comedian, we don't actually have to harass each other. Or I'll be alcoholics. It turns out, you know what I mean? Like, don't figure. right. Like there's lots of ways that we all enter different fields and we're like, Hmm, we could do this in a different way. And it's something Absolutely. that I think doing as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to that point, I mean, comedians that we have on our show are constantly sort of like marveling at the environment that we've created. And I have to say, like, it has spoiled me because when you do some other shows, there's some great shows in New York City and we love them and like big ups, you know. Um, But when you do a lot of other shows, you're like, oh, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. Like, it's really a culture shock feeling. We're we're spoiled by the Boss Bitch show. I mean, last night we had an amazing show. I mean, every performer was either femme identifying or, you know, queer, uh, non-binary, you know, and it was just like, and then our audience is so diverse and, you know, BIPOC and and Mm. it's just like, 
Yeah, but we created it. And anytime we get frustrated by it, we remind ourselves like, nope, this is not just about us. There's a bigger picture here. There's something we're creating. Right now, it may be still unfortunately niche, um, but it's becoming a bigger conversation. I literally on the walk here was like walking through Astoria and this girl was like... (coughs) Aren't you a comedian? Bless you. You're Rachel Green, right? And I was like, yeah. She's like, I love the Boss Bitch show. I can't wait to come to your next show. It's like, how cool is that? I I mean, it is very cool. And like, you know, even yesterday, it was so funny. We were laughing at ourselves because literally right before the show, you know, we, we have two places where you can buy tickets and we have like full access to one of them. And we're looking at our ticket sales and it's dismal, dismal. And we're like, well... You know, we'll always put on a great show no matter how many people are in the audience. We weren't stressed about it. We were just like, well, it is what it is. You know, sometimes you have a light show. And in my head, I'm also like, maybe we need to take a break. Right. Change something. It's like maybe it's maybe we gotta do something different. Maybe we gotta change. You know, we gotta shake things up. We gotta break. You know, or maybe we just need to take six months off or you know, cut to. The other ticket sale system is like, and all these people start coming in. And then we have this incredible show, like what Rachel was saying, you know, queer, femme identifying, BIPOC comics, the audience, not only did the audience start pouring in, but they were hot. They were into it. They were diverse. Like it was what, like we went from being like, oh, it's just going to be one of those like chill light bummer shows too it was one of the best shows we've ever had (laughs) we've ever had (laughs) and and you do realize that and I'm sure you can relate to this uh Diana that you realize that you have created something that is bigger than you and that it has like a life of its own and it has it's far more than us you know absolutely Absolutely. I get so inspired by feeling that impact because I I get a lot of right-wing hate Um, There are people on the internet that have like had a pray in for my suicide. Can you imagine supposed Christians like praying for a stranger's suicide? I mean, it's just like, what? Um, Yeah, there's a lot of really death threats. Yeah, that's what it means to be an LGBTQ activist that's making a difference in a really big way Mm -hmm. and a really public facing way. And I'm up for it because they're mostly trolls in basements and they're not really going to do something to me. But what I, I get is like people who are have been so moved and inspired. I had a woman come over from London and she talked to me about getting out of a a domestic violence situation. And I asked her about that experience and what led her to do that. And she pulled out a quote from me that she carried dog-eared in her wallet about some of my experiences as a survivor. Like, (laughs) you know, like, I'm like, I keep going, you know? I spoke, uh, I spoke to a bunch of kind of conservative Midwestern lawyers this past weekend. Um, about how they can create LGBTQ culturally competent offices and how they can support the different kinds of queer families that they may see, including polyamorous families, platonic co-parents. And that felt really powerful that, you know, I wasn't stressed out about people disagreeing with me and having those conversations because persuading people in that room makes a big impact in people's lives. But also, you know, just meeting people and feeling the impact or it's like, I'm in Kentucky and people are, moved and crying and they meet me on the street because I helped them realize that, you know, being in a interracial relationship um, and having a woman that works and a man that stays home by, by they were joking by Kentucky standards were queer. And you helped us realize we identify with queer people. We relate more to queer people. Wow. We're doing something different. And we didn't have a way to identify that. So I feel like I really value the, the positive impact that I get and kind of like 
mostly try to let the uh, hate just roll off my back like a hot mm-hmm. duck and have a really good like <laughs> online privacy team. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Un, 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 uh, unsolicited uh, plug. I'm not sponsored by them, but deleteme.com will go through. And if you're like information about your personal cell phone number or home address are listed anywhere on the internet, it just does a constant scan and deletes your personal data. Oh, hell yeah. It costs like like a couple hundred dollars a year. I get like, you know, once a month, they're like, here's the 40 places we took this down. And I'm like, some troll could have found that. Right. So wow, wow. get the good online data. Be careful what I share online about my location and my family. And then just keep on trucking, you know, Um, and recognize that when you get activity, that that's maybe partly because you're making an impact and they're freaked out, you know? Yeah. You know, and uh Everything that's coming out of your mouth, like there's so much coming out of your mouth right now that like, I'm like, I got to remember to say something about this. Like, I'm like overwhelmed. It's just like incredible. And I want to say something about um, you talking about the culture that you've created at your law firm, like a, a work, a workplace culture. And, you know, it's funny because as comedians and Rachel, I know you'll have more to say about this as well, but we encounter a lot of, I, I'll just speak for myself. I've encountered a lot of good white cis male comedians that are, they are good people. I like them. And then you encounter uh, a scenario where it's like, they're good people, but you didn't speak up for me. And what are you doing for the rest of us? What are you doing? You know, I think there's like allyship in, concept and there's allyship in action Mm -hmm. and the allyship in action it not only can it feel difficult for the people that are being othered but it can feel it's like yeah you really have to do something what are you doing you know I've encountered this not only in comedy but in other spaces you know like that film that I was doing where I had to speak up for myself and be like hey I'm doing this film and I'm the only female character and I'm the only person that you, I'm the only character you don't hear from. Why? And ask two male writers, two white cis male writers, hey, why why are we not hearing from this character? (laughs) And, And kind of see them respond and not do anything. So it's like, oh, okay. I guess we're not doing the allyship in action thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I I feel that in two ways as a boss. One is that I feel like in a lot of traditional high paced like workspaces like law, it's Mm -hmm. kind of has been accepted that some people, especially, you know, males who have status can get angry and have a day where they yell at people. Mm. You know what I mean? I worked one of my first legal internships. uh, I was working for an assembly woman who would throw staplers at people like those kinds of stories you hear about politicians and law firm owners are real, like throwing a stapler at someone's head or like yelling or screaming or having an adult tantrum. And I'm like, no, you know? And so I've been somebody who is willing to like take someone aside and say, it's okay to have a hard day. We, we do not, we do not scream at people here. And so collect yourself. And when you're ready another day, you can come back and then we're going to have an apology and you're going to explain to the team how that's not going to happen again, you know? Mm. And that's not something people wow. like here. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. 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 Like absolutely. I just have a hard line about that. Like uh, people make mistakes. You're absolutely yeah. welcome to make a mistake, but using power to 
the little people in a workplace who don't have as much power as you is not something that I'm ever okay with. And so I welcome people to say, you know, I apologize and I'm going to go get a therapist, but the kind of person that belittles someone in the workplace is probably not going to do that. And so that's like a hard line for me about, we yeah. don't tolerate that. And that's the kind of thing I've also experienced in other jobs in nightlife, you know, in any kind of job oh, yeah. uh, stressed out. And I'm committed to also being a boss where like that is not acceptable. And so even right. if I, at some point, you know, have a tone I will go back and say, you know what? You forgot to send the email. I'm so sorry if in that moment of stress before the meeting that I, if I, if I sounded sharp about that and I will talk to them face to face and make sure that everything's okay and say, I'm so sorry if that sounded sharp, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I take that on for myself too, as like a continual growth process. Like I'm going to be in really stressful situations and people will make mistakes and I'm going to continue to always be in a path of just handling that as gracefully as possible, except people make mistakes, but that like, we don't ever allow a culture where power is used that way. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Hell yes. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's, that's fabulous. And it just occurred to me while you were speaking that, um, one of the biggest things that I loved and learned in the poly community was boundaries and speaking what I needed and what worked and what didn't work. And I took that into my corporate life. You know, Mm -hmm. I had, uh, someone that worked for my boss that came up to me like hot screaming in a hallway. And I looked at him and I said, I'm happy to help you, but I don't respond to screaming. And I would appreciate if you don't do that ever again, it's not appropriate. And it doesn't, it doesn't need to be done if for me to help you. So what do you need help with? And he was like, never again, you know, and then other executive assistants would sometimes that, you know, their my boss reported to their boss and I would be like, that's not okay. Like the only people that, that have yelled at me that it's maybe okay, but it's still not even okay is my parents. And I go to therapy for that. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And it's like, we're not also, we were not doing like brain surgery, you know, um, we're not saving lives here in your job. There are higher stake situations. Um, but I'm like, we're doing insurance. Like it's not yeah, that right, big right, right. Like, And still, like, I think that one of my mantras is like, it's going to be okay. Let's all just yeah. take a breath. And it's my job to actually like lower the pressure on the team. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, it's more likely that an assistant is going to be stressed out that they messed up and they ruined everything. And I'm like, nope. the interview that I'm doing, will start five minutes late. And it's really not that big of a deal. You know what I mean? Like it is yeah. fine it is okay. It's going to be fine. Like to just sort of being somebody who also kind of models having emotional skills and emotional regulation to handle stressful situations for my employees and my team is really important to me. And I think another piece of that is then also talking about us as whole people and how we're taking care of each other and if we're okay. And I think that's relevant for people with secondary trauma or vicarious trauma, which is when you're exposed to other people's traumatic experiences. And this happens to people who work in ERs and this work happens to Mm. journalists cover wars. And this happens also to people that work in legal services. And so for example, at my nonprofit chosen family law center, we're one of two places in New York where LGBTQ asylees who are escaping persecution can come to the country and we give them a full green card process for free if they're low income, they all are. Um, And so with that though, you have to hear a story of how they were tortured and by nature, the people that do this kind of work are queers with big hearts. And so there's almost no way that's not going to be something that's going to be difficult for you. And I think that the traditional male culture was like, even in even in nonprofits, even in super left nonprofits was like, you know, 
the end of the day, I drink three martinis because I can handle that. And like, I just push that shit down and I throw the party, you know? Yeah, like, madman. <laughs> yeah. And in law school, they're literally like bringing you wine samplers and scotch samplers because they're like, you're going to be a high end alcoholic. Would you like scotch or whiskey or wine as your vice of choice or, <laughs> or cocaine, you know? And so I'm like, I mean, I love my wine, but like, right. let's also think about if there's a way we could take care of ourselves a bit better. And I think that's also something that I'm sure you experience in a world of nightlife where like you are talking about your experience as women, as queers, and where other people might be making jokes about that, that could be really raw. And I think it's, you know, also valuable to just be in a space where it's like talking about the things that are hard or talking yeah. about getting harassed on the job is something that probably all of us have experienced. That's just a really good point. And Rachel and I have also talked about this a lot because you said two things that I was like, boing, um, one emotional regulation, <laughs> and like how that's just not expected of a lot of adults. And it's like, no, well, this is what we do here. You know, you're responsible for yourself and what comes out of your mouth and what you do. And then the other part of like giving consideration to our nervous systems. I mean, this is something I talked to Rachel about recently where I, when I was in like acting conservatory that like we would do these insane, you know, emotional preparations, dark, dark material, you know what I mean? And you, you know, like the title of that book, you know, the body keeps the score. Your body doesn't know the difference. Your nervous system doesn't know the difference. And it's like, yes, are we playing pretend? Are we acting? Of course we are. But my body doesn't know the difference. So a question that I ask that I'm still asking Mm -hmm. really of my industry and of my art is like, how do we take care of that? Mm -hmm. How do we do these? Because I have played disturbed characters and I have had to create something very disturbing in order to portray that character and for weeks felt (laughs) like after performing it felt like, Ooh, this did something to me. And how do I come out of that? How do I take care of myself? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think in many industries, those questions are not being asked. I mean, we saw it with the pandemic, like what are we doing for these healthcare workers that have experienced mass trauma? You know, what are we doing for them? Right. Absolutely. And I think that it's just super useful to be in a dialogue and be aware of this in a way that I think we have not been and most of the world still isn't. And I think that for me, that's a process of having a workplace where we check in on how we're doing, where we're conscious about, can you take another case like that? This is going to be a domestic violence related case. Let's talk honestly about whether you can handle that. I learned for myself that I can like titrate and do a little bit of that kind of work where I work with like a, I can either work on the torture case or I can work on this woman's terrible domestic violence case, but I probably can only do like one of those. And then I need to do some happy queer adoptions and write a good law. You know what I mean? Like I can do one of those things I've learned for myself. People I work with like reflect on that. And then we do the reflecting and then also consciously talk about what are the practices that are healthy so that I can unlearn some of my, like I'm a lawyer and I am Scottish whiskey makers on one side and winemakers from France, Germany on the other <laughs> side. I am like built to drink alcohol, right? And I love it and I enjoy it, but I'm also in a culture of alcoholism and I'm conscious of like, okay, 
I can have a glass of wine at the end of the day. That should not be my primary way to get my nervous system. Okay. Mm. The other ways I'm going to consciously also add in there. And I like go running through the park every morning that it's not raining and I'm on my Peloton bike. You know what I mean? Like I need that kind of endorphin. I need to Mm -hmm. get out of my head and I need to get in my body. I need to dance. Yeah. I learned in the pandemic. I have to dance. Zoom dance parties do not cut it. I need to dance collectively, you know, those kinds of things. I need to do my yoga. I need to be by exercise. I need to like be with people wordlessly as well as having the, like, let's talk about the fact that this is hard and acknowledge Mm -hmm. what our own limits are. Um, I love what Rachel said about boundary setting because we met through polyamory and queer community in New York and those kinds of skills of boundary setting and communication and self-awareness that I've learned in that have also helped me set limits for myself. Even those skills of, you know, at the beginning with Polly, where it was like a partner's asking a question, like, how would you feel if I, my other date is at the party we're going to, and we all hang out when we're having our date night. And like, I can actually you know, learned over at first I was like, I, I don't know how I'm going to feel, you know? And I think of it as sometimes finding my boundaries by tripping over them. Cause I'm often a person that's like, yes. And then I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> um, this is terrible. And I'm crying wow. so now. It's like, I can do like a kind of like a scan of like, what do I feel in my body? When I hear that question, what am I, I'm aware of what my own like challenges are and what I'm meeting right now. And I'm like, you know what? I'm really needing more like focused time with you. I, and I know I'm going to say no. And I'm also going to know that like, you're not gonna be mad at me, you know? Mm. And so just like knowing myself and also feeling comfortable setting the boundaries and knowing the people that respect me and care about me, are going to hear them. That kind of skill also helps me when I'm like, I'm not really comfortable with you yelling at people in this office. Let's go have a talk, you know, like, or like, no, I'm not available. Like I want to help all of the refugees at once. And I'm like, I should do this much. And then maybe you do this much. And we check in about how we can do this and be okay. Um, so I'm, I think that that yeah. kind of like boundary setting for yourself is incredibly important to be able to figure out how you can move through this world. That's so challenging and take on tough projects and take on things that scare you, but like find balance for yourself to take mm. care of ourselves. It, wow. it also makes me think of, um, you know, also having compassion for ourselves and that we're like constantly learning and growing. I, I listened to Abraham Hicks almost every morning and there was, certain things just like hit me and stay with me. And the one thing that I heard the other day was like self-awareness and an alignment and whatever you want to call it. It's not like a college degree. It's not like you take a course and you figure it out and then it's fine. You're, you're set for life. It's like, (laughs) no, this is, this is an ongoing thing. We may become more skilled and better at creating boundaries, creating self-care you know, expressing our needs and our wants and, and being more balanced in the world, you know, we learn until we die, you know, or leave this plane, this earthly plane, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I'm so stunned at how many smart, brilliant, genius people I met at Yale and Cornell law school who didn't know that. And that that was not a conversation we ever had, which is why I like to speak to law students. I speak to college students because I feel like there was this idea that like, we're all on this, like racing on a hamster wheel for like success. And so my idea of life was I was going to like win the great spouse and a tenure track professorship at an Ivy league school and buy a big house and do all that by 35 and then just hold and stay. Yep. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. yeah. You know, how many people believe it's- that? 
Right. And it was like, I'm setting up my life to have like a great one paragraph Wikipedia entry as if that's the goal, you know, <laughs> as opposed yeah. to like enjoying myself. And for mm-hmm. there was actually a while there where I was trying out working at a big corporate law firm. The alarm clock would go off in the morning and I was like, I, I hate this. Mm-hmm. And I was like, am I depressed? What's wrong with me? You know, everybody was like, you just need to like work 80 hours a week. And then someday when you're, you know, 60, you can go on vacations to Italy and you can buy some really fancy purses for now. And I was like, I just, what, you know, like I'm not happy. And, and I felt like people were really buying a narrative about what success meant for them. And I am making literally could be making 10 times more money than I'm making right now. If I'd stayed in that corporate job Mm -hmm. and a lot of those people in those corporate jobs are just wanting to take me out to dinner to hear about my life because there's miserable. There could be great corporate jobs too, but I think it's really important and valuable to take the time to actually define success for yourself and be willing to kind of make those bold moves toward that because I don't want to be in a situation where I'm in a stasis from now till death. And I have my same daily routine and the same job and the same patterns. I want to be growing. I want to be learning. I want to be open to that. And actually I'm excited about having a career that can have many different facets and many different phases. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, we, we talked a little bit um, with Christine yesterday about this, about how generationally, you know, like the millennials, the, like, you know, some of the Gen X and certainly the Gen Z are making decisions about their life like this, that they're like, oh, no, I don't want to have 40 hours of my week that I fucking hate. I would rather make less money and have a job that I actually enjoy or go after my dreams and maybe have less money, but be able to enjoy more of my life, enjoy more of the hours of my day, have that like quality of life. And I think that can be like very triggering for our other older generations when they look at that, because they never knew they had that choice. They, I mean, they really didn't. Right. And, and there was an interesting and impactful for me study that once you make something like 75 or $80,000 a year, the amount more that you make doesn't particularly increase your happiness that like 75, 80 K like you, you might be a little stretched, but you can still go out to dinner and you can buy a car and you can go on vacation. You know what I mean? Like you can like live your life without being anxious about the rent payment, you know? And, but just from there onward, it's like, Oh, I get a nicer Airbnb when I go on vacation or like I go out to more restaurants, but Mm -hmm. you know, overall, the big thing for me is I love my job that I go to every day. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? I rent a car when when I don't own a car but I love my job every day. It's absolutely worth it. I make plenty of money to be able to travel. I visited 25 countries in six years when I lived in Germany, including two years of full lockdown. Cause I just traveled all around, had my own job, brought my kid with me, traveled all around Europe with my partner and with my friends, stayed in affordable places, but have the freedom to do that with my job. I have the flexibility. I, you know, and I would rather live more simply and be able to do work that I'm excited about every single day. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it also reminds me, um, I mean, I can't remember the title of the book, but there's a book about the uh, psychology of being wealthy and how it actually changes your brain chemistry. A certain amount of wealth changes your brain. And I'm paraphrasing, but because you have to find a way to rationalize having that much money, knowing that there is so much poverty and so much lack and suffering, your brain has to find a way to rationalize having millions, billions of dollars, because it 
it doesn't make sense when you look into the outside world. So you end up having this sort of pathology of like, I have this money because I am better. Yes. Yes. And yeah, I, I, do, I do high end divorces in New York City. That's one of the things that I do. So I do half my time with my private law firm and I do half the time with my nonprofit chosen family law center. Mm-hmm. And so with my law firm, we do a lot of LGBTQ family formation and interesting queer cases. And we also one of the things that funds what we do is we do high end collaborative and mediation kinds of cases mm-hmm. um, with divorce and child custody disputes, because we're also good at getting people to calm down. Um, and one thing I like it. that I've worked with, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people in these kinds of cases. And I see that sometimes people's sense of priority has gotten so off that, you know, in their divorce case, it's like, I have plenty of money. I want to continue fighting my children, you know, my, my, the mother of my children for more money, even though my kids and my ex-wife are going to hate me. And I'm kind of like, okay, let's just take a take a breath and have a big picture, buddy. Okay. Mm. Is more money in your 401k when you die, the big priority here, or maybe not having your kids think you're a miserly asshole could be also a valid priority, you know? And I'm actually in this position where I'm able to like, sometimes help people like, let's think about what your actual life goals are here. And maybe Mm. like fighting the other parent of your children to the death is like, maybe not going to serve them. And I also see this with the majority MO of the divorce lawyers in New York city is like treating people like they are, they're in some sort of a match where it's like, I want as many chips on my side as possible chips, meaning money. And, you know, there are other factors and priorities that go into Mm -hmm. this and maybe not having a five year long battle where you bring out every negative thing you could say about each other to embarrass each other in a child custody case could also be part of that value and priority rather than just fighting for as much money as possible. And I have seen the way that some people have taken on their sense of self with wealth of my purpose in the world is to make a lot of money mm-hmm. because I am a terrible person is why <gasps> you're after that. Do you know what I mean? Like, like my children will only like me when they get the inheritance, because even I don't like me is the, is the part that I sometimes try to like <sighs> pull out of like, you know, why Steve, mm-hmm. you know, do you think that that the money that you make is the thing that you're contributing. And I just want to pull that apart. And so it's actually a beautiful victory for me when I can take on more of the counselor at law aspect of being a lawyer and have those private conversations where I can kind of pull some of those issues. And when I can make a masculine man cry and have a breakthrough, that is my biggest goal. (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm like, because it's so difficult. And I think we also toxic masculinity impacts men too. And yeah. so then sometimes they like they they Absolutely. aren't able to access their emotions or they start to think my role as a father means I make money. And I'm like, Provider. what they're like, did that work for you? You know? Um, and so I think that there's a, a transformative role there, actually, even in those mm. like ugly crisis moments of helping people have a different conversation and have a conversation about money. That's really honest. Yeah. So, wow. Yeah. So much of how we operate in the world is just inherited conversations whether it's from family or society or you know it's just like how we're trained and it's like Mm. until we explore and take on a different conversation or disrupt that dialogue that that paradigm that's so ingrained in us and you know we'll, we'll catch ourselves we talk about this too you know and and I mean if anything not to get too political but if anything the election taught us that you know uh, misogyny extends to women too, you know? Um, Oof. so yeah, it's, it's wonderful that you're, you're helping to break that apart and, 
And hopefully we do that with our comedy too. You know, it's like just like, like notching it away a little bit by bit, you know, transforming people's conversations and, you know, what that can lead to. And I think I've talked about it before, things that you don't know that you did, right? Like in college, mm-hmm. um, I was, I was, I was always Rachel, you know, um, always been very outspoken, very sex positive. And this girl reached out to me who I knew from college, haven't talked to her in 20 years. And she said, you know, you were the first person I ever met that openly talked about sex. And that really impacted me. And I'm glad that you're still doing it. And, and now for the yeah. world, thank you. And I was like, <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It does transform. It does transform the conversation to bring it up. And I think that um, comedy is sometimes a stealth way to like get that yes. in there too. You know, I think that like men, men aren't necessarily also particularly seeking out that like personal growth thing, but they get it from like the comedy, they get it from their dominatrix, they get it from their sex worker, they get it from their female friends, they get it from their divorce lawyer. You know what I mean? So sometimes it's like, you know, moments of opening. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just had this conversation with a friend at the dog park where I was like, you know, we were talking about our show and, um, And how, you know, a lot of people these days, there's sort of this phenomenon in the last 10 to 15 years that people are getting their news and their politics from comedians. And I think that's really interesting because it's under the guise of comedy of like, oh, no, we're just laughing and having a good time. We're not like getting information. You know, we're just laughing and having a good time. And Chelsea Handler has famously said that her favorite audiences are in the South. Mm, And you would think the opposite. But people get information under the guise of like these different jobs, you know, like we have a job as comedians, you know, I've been a sex worker, I've been a stripper and my, the biggest part of my job was listening. Yeah. People just want to be heard men who maybe don't have relationships in their waking life where they can be vulnerable, where they can tell their secrets, where they can tell their deepest desires. I was that person. And it really, it was very important to me. Rachel knows, I mean, I talked about, I talk about it extensively with close friends that like, it had meaning to me to be that person who could, who could intently listen and listen authentically. And like, was it transactional? Yes. And I was providing a service, you know, it didn't cancel out the authenticity that it was transactional. It actually created a safe environment where they knew what they were getting, you know, they knew that they were getting someone who was going to listen to them and converse with them. I mean, I'll never forget, like I had a, um, I guess you could say a client, I don't know what you would call it, you know, we're all at the bar and we're like chatting and flirting and like talking to this group of guys and this, um, you know, hedge fund Wall Street type, uh, you know, I was making conversation with him and he said, yeah, I just bought, um, I just bought an apartment. And, and he was like, you know, it's like this million dollar, like my dream home, my dream apartment. And, you know, if he had said that to just a woman at the bar that he was trying to chat up and flirt, they would probably think it's tacky. They would probably be like, ugh, you know, roll their eyes. And whereas I could say, wow, you must've worked really hard to accomplish that. Show me pictures. Show me, show me like you're excited about this. Show me, you know, where I can authentically receive them, Mm -hmm. you know, and see them and see them. Yeah. And I think that that's such a powerful model too, because 
women and femmes experience so much of like of emotional labor mm. and that can get really uh it can be really taxing that can yes. be putting upon us right but in a context in which it's like this is a container where I also feel like I'm being respected for my time yes. and I'm being paid for this like great and then that actually can open up more of a capacity um and yes. you hear that all the time from you know different varieties of sex workers and also you know situations of like I'm supposed to be your divorce lawyer and we're talking about your relationship with your dad and that's fine you know what I mean like mm-hmm. I'm here for you yeah. I am fully available to process all of the things and this is not and you're being charged by the hour so yeah it's hey. great go ahead go ahead yeah. um and that's really different than the sort of like you know married friend who's a guy who doesn't have any other female friends besides me that wants to like dump everything on me and get advice all the time where I'm like you could you could get a therapist no right wow. because it, it look money is an exchange of energy and we should yes. never be ashamed of that okay you know I think I've talked about it before but you know I had an Instagram fan who really enjoyed burping and boob flexing and he would give me money for that and and it was great and he was an EMT and this was his way of of taking a break from the job. And I felt great about it. That's you know, and hey. <laughs> I feel great about that. I, I mean, I, I you know, and he taught me essentially how to flex my boobs and burp on cue. So good on him. And what, is, what does flexing boobs mean? Does it it's like a jiggle situation? It's that. Wow. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. That's a beautiful skill. The multi-talented you know, Rachel Green. Thank you. You know, he he literally would send me videos like, hey, so this is how this woman does it. I could do it like this too, but it's a little wow. more powerful. Did you have to like work way. up your pecs? I mean, I already work out, so they were pretty good. Um, you know, you do that a little bit more and then uh, yeah. carbonation uh, helps to uh, burp on cue, whether that's a seltzer or a beer, depending on your, uh, <laughs> your choice that's of uh, CO2. And um, yeah. You know, I I took a break from it. I I was like, okay, I think we're done. But, uh, you know, throughout the pandemic, it was good for both of us. (laughs) I love that. You know, and Rachel, you said something that it was, has been a mantra for me, was certainly a mantra for me when I was stripping and has continued to be a a mantra for me as I work in different gig work and I I do a million different jobs that my energy is my currency. Mm. And that idea Did I say that? (laughs) No, no. It's a, it's something that like I sort of um, was able to like boil down to this idea that however I am in this world and the way I walk through this life, like that is my currency. That is my, that is my exchange with the universe. Mm -hmm. So whatever I put out, I'm going to get back. So no matter what the job is, you know, whether I'm like working, whether I'm a roller skating Fraulein, you know, uh, you know, taking pictures with a giant blow up pretzel, or I'm on set as an actor, my energy is my currency and I'm responsible for my energy and whatever, whatever I put out, I'm going to get back. So keep that in mind, you know, and I do. And that's why I made so much money as a stripper. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I think this is just naturally a time to take out the big deck energy cards. Great. Oh, <laughs> give me that big deck. Ah, uh, so it's a deck of cards that we made, uh, similar to tarot, where we have readings and affirmations and definitions where we take back words that have been uh stigmatized in our society. Great. So I'm going to shuffle them and just uh, tell me when to stop. Stop. 
Oh, how fitting for this time of the year. You got which? Which? Yes. I love that. Okay. So the idea is to talk about taking back that word. Well, we'll tell you how we redefined it. Great. How do you redefine it? We say that a witch is a mystical, intuitive creature who wields powers unknown and is the master slash mistress of their universe. I love that. And uh, yeah, we do too. Thank you. And uh, you received an upright witch card, which uh, the upright reading is, ooh, you are clicked into the universe, bitch. Your intuition is on point. Your magical manifesting pussy might intimidate some, but that's likely because their frontal fucking lobes aren't fully developed. Cast a spell on them, you cunt. <laughs> Love it. Into it. Can I, yes. can I share a witch thought? Yeah, please. please. Um, I just moved back from living in Germany and it was really powerful to learn the history of witch persecution there. Um, and I actually, I'm from the Alsace Lorraine region on one side of my family. And that was a major witch persecution area. And I went to the sites where that happened and I'm like, there's no way that some bitch I'm related to was not one of these people, you know, cause mm. it so many women for hundreds of years. Um, Ooh, and so I feel like a deep, I actually feel a deep witch kinship. And a lot of times it was because it was like the outspoken women where it's like, you're freaking me out. The other place where witchcraft, the ideas came from was that there's this story um, in uh, some places where it'd be like, troops are coming and invading and some charming woman would be like, oh, you're so tired though. How about you eat some soup I'm making for you? I'll make a giant soup for all of you. And then give them psychedelics, give them poisonous mushrooms, like knowing all of the herbs in nature. And they would be like, one woman just killed 20 men with suit, she must be a witch, right? But really it was like, she's just tuned into what's going on and has lots of powers, including the power of charm and persuasion and understanding nature that they didn't have. Mm. So I love witches, so yeah. Indeed, ah, and it's, it's amazing when we really tap into our intuition, you know, our Ooh. natural given gifts, especially around the full moon, especially around our periods. Um, you know, just, uh, you know, all that stuff. It's like, oh, we are, we are freaking powerful. You better watch out, bitch. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So the affirmation is I craft my world as I see fit. I am connected to my highest purpose, hunty. I am made from the magical dust of those who burned before me. Now set the world on fire. I am a witch, bitch. I love Ooh. that. I love Ooh. that. Yeah. Perfect. Wow. Halloween. And like, abs- absolutely to your point of like feeling that kinship, feeling like, oh, I had to be related. I mean, I'm from Massachusetts. There had to be somebody in Salem Yeah, <laughs> in my past. You know what I mean? Yeah. When you said the witch thing, I got instant goosebumps. And mm-hmm. um, we were talking last night about going to Egypt and I had a past life regression where it was very clear, like my originating life was in Egypt. I was in service of ISIS and my gift was sacred sexuality. Wow. Yeah. When, when they said that, I was like, "Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Spot on. Cause I was having vivid dreams of riding horses, like leading flocks of horses through Egypt. And I was like, why am I having these recurring dreams? And then we like went past it back, 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 back. And he's like, and now we come to the final layer. And I was like, if this motherfucker says Egypt, I'm gonna lose my shit. And he goes, 
you are in Egypt. And I was like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I need one of those past life regressions. Very oh, powerful. I bet. Well, can you please tell the listeners where they can find you, follow you, um, sure. you know, reap the benefits of your amazing services, your wisdom. Where's the Ted talk? Tell us all the things. Thank you so much. I think that um, the best place to find all of those things is me on Twitter or Facebook uh, at Diana Adams ESQ as an Esquire um, at Diana Adams ESQ, Twitter, Facebook, you'll see links to my law firm and also then chosen family law center.org would be where to find my nonprofit. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, it was such a pleasure. Thank Truly. you so much. Thank you so much for having me boss bitches. Oh my God. Thank you.